0: The records don't lie, but your ancestors might. Welcome to The Criminal Genealogist, where true crime and genealogy intersect. Welcome back, my criminal genies, to season two of The Criminal Genealogist podcast. What started as an idea in 2020 evolved into this podcast and finally happened in 2021. And since I know I have a few listeners, I came back for season two. So someone asked me why I chose to do a podcast about criminal ancestors. Well, when I decided to switch careers and turn my 25 years of genealogy research experience into a professional gig, I wanted to find a niche that really suited me. Obviously, traditional genealogy research covers all areas, and you need to know how to research all kinds of records, but it's also good to have an area that you can specialize in. As a true crime fan and having a legal background, it seemed a natural fit to focus on criminal records. I also love probate records, but that's just not as exciting to talk about. I hope you enjoy this season and would love your support by following the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. And then let your friends know about the podcast because sharing is caring. All right, let's get started. Today's episode is about Michael Mike Globenfeldt, who I found when I was researching for a client whose ancestor has the same surname. His mugshot popped up and I felt like it was a sign that I was supposed to research him. Good thing I did because he started making news as a young boy and continued to be in the paper for less than savory behavior. Before we dive into his criminal acts, let's learn a little more about Mike and his family. Michael, Mike Globenfelt, was born in February of 1890 or 1892 in Baltimore, Maryland, to parents Lewis Globenfelt and Anna Annie Redner. Now, some records state he was born in 1890, which better aligns with the ages stated in newspapers, but the Maryland Birth Registry shows that Lewis and Anna had a child born on February 2, 1892, which may or may not be him. Now, according to the Jewish Gen Online Burial Registry, his Hebrew name was Malik Lieb. His parents immigrated in either 1878 or 1893 from Krakow, Austria, where they were both born. Now, immigration records could not be found for either of them to confirm exact dates, but census records indicated these years, which I will discuss later in this episode. Now, a little history about where they migrated from. Krakow was returned to Poland in 1918, only to be taken back by the Germans in World War II. Sadly, any family still remaining there during the war were sent to Auschwitz to death camp since they were Jewish, unless they escaped prior. After the city was liberated, Poland took control again, and today is a city in Poland. Now, the family is found in the 1900 census living in Salt Lake City, Utah, at 635 State Street. Now, Annie, Mike's mom, is listed as um, having five children born and only four living. Since the 1890 census is difficult to find in the majority of places, and they may have arrived after the census, it's unclear if the deceased child was born before or after 1890. Either way, the child would have died prior to the 1900 census. Mike is listed as seven years old, and his Birth, month, and year are listed as September of 1892, which is not a month listed anywhere else. There are three other sons, all younger than Mike, also with Lewis and Annie. Willie, age 5, Alex, age 3, and Henry, age 1. Mike's birthplace is Maryland, and the other three boys are born in Utah. However, there is a conflict. The parents indicated they immigrated in 1893 and had been in the U.S. for six years. If Mike was born in Maryland in 1892 and they immigrated after that, then clearly something is not right. It does state that Lewis is naturalized, so finding that record could clear information up. Census records are only as good as the informant and the census enumerator. Lewis is marked as the informant and his birth, month, and year are marked unknown. How did he not know his own info? So this puts into question all of the rest of the information he provided Since the Maryland battle records show they had a child on February 2nd, 1892, I would guess dad got it wrong on the census. I dug a little more into the parents and found a few family trees that have Hebrew names. Now, I have no way to verify if this is correct, but it gave me more possibilities of finding them in the census records or city directories. Lewis, the father, is shown as Samuel Liebisch Leon Globenfeld. Now, I've seen the surname multiple versions, Globenfeld, Globenfeld, and now Globenfeld. The mom, Anna, is listed as Hanna Sprints. I caution everyone not to use other family trees as a credible source, unless they have sources cited for their information, then use those, those sources to validate your information. I only use these trees as another tool for possible names, areas that I can research. In September of 1904, there was mention in the Los Angeles Times about an attack on a young newsboy named Michael Globenfeld on the corner of First and Spring Streets of Los Angeles. Mike would have been about 12 to 14 years old. The defendant, E. Dillard, pleaded not guilty, and the trial was set for the following Monday. A few days later, it was reported that Dillard was convicted and had to pay $5. No details on what happened that caused the altercation. This occurred a few weeks after Mike's mom gave birth to another son, which I will discuss here in a bit. At 15, Mike went missing and his mom put notices in the paper. One in the Los Angeles Times from February 5th, 1907 read, quote, wanted to know the whereabouts of Michael Globenfeld, a young man of 15 years old, but looks older. Notify his mother, Mrs. A. Globenfeld, 221 North Figaro Street. If he has no money, I will send him some. His mother is very sick, End quote. No further information was found to figure out where Mike was at, but based on future events, there may have been some trouble at home and Mike ran away. The address where his parents and siblings were living was about eight-tenths of a mile from where Mike had been attacked in 1904. In late 1907, Michael was found in Salt Lake City. He was back in the news for being attacked and beaten along with a friend, and they both were left for dead. He would have been about 16 or 17 years old. Michael and his friend Edward Green were lured by Richard Baker and Edward Art Bowen to a lonely spot north of the fairgrounds in Salt Lake City. The newspaper called Michael and his friend junkmen, aka Junk Dealers. It says the two thugs murderously assaulted and robbed the boys with hammers. Mike survived and was in the courtroom for the arraignment. The other victim, Green, was reported to have had five fractures to the skull, a hemorrhage of the brain, 12 scalp wounds, a bone in each hand broken, and his right forearm broken. He was expected to die. Now, the victim in the hospital, Edward Green, he was up and down while he was in the hospital. At first, they didn't think he would survive and that the charges against Richard and Art would be for murder. Ultimately, though, the doctors were able to remove pieces of the skull, which relieved pressure on his brain, and Edward Green survived the attack. In January 1908, the defendants, ages 20 and 21, were ultimately convicted and sentenced to 20 years each for the intent to commit murder. Sounds like we need to have another episode about these two. So is Mike just in the wrong places at the wrong times and has the worst of luck? Or is he getting himself into these situations? One will never know what was going on with Mike at this young age, but it doesn't sound like he was having the best life. Probably homeless or living cheap somewhere and having to hustle just to survive. One would hope he would find a different path, but he did not. I wouldn't be talking about him if he did, would I? So Mike did leave Salt Lake City after the trial and headed back to Los Angeles sometime in 1908 because at the age of probably 18 on the 23rd of October, He married Rebecca Becky Small in Los Angeles. In the September 22nd, 1909 issue of the Los Angeles Times, an article states that Mike and his mother, Annie, had a misunderstanding a few months prior and that he left. It states he is 19 years old and was last known to be peddling fruit. So I'm going to read the article because it's it's just too much. I got to read it. So the article is titled Mother Wants Her Boy, and it's got a picture of a boy, uh, Mike, and he looks like he's about 12, even though he's supposed to be 19, which is interesting because the other newspaper posting that she had said that he looked older than he than he is, which maybe it's just a bad picture. I don't know. But it says, Mike Globenfeld, we want you home, Mike. We will send money for a ticket. If you see this message, Mike Glovenfelt, go home to your mother. She is waiting and watching for you. She is spending sleepless nights and worried days, wondering where you are and when you will return. Michael Glovenfelt, 19, left his mother's home at 1018 West 4th Street about two months ago. There had been some misunderstanding between him and his mother, Mrs. Annie Glovenfelt, and the boy went away. No word has been heard from him since. Mike is short and stout and weighs 196 pounds. He has brown hair and eyes and a scar on his forehead. He wore a brown serge suit and black derby when he left home. He worked as a fruit peddler. His mother thinks he may be working under an assumed name. We know at this point that the family had moved to Los Angeles in or prior to 1904. The family is found on the 1910 census, living at that same address, 1018 West 4th Street. Living with the parents are Willie, Alex, Henry, and two new children, Sarah, age seven, and Jacob, age six, both of them born in California. Mom is the informant this time, and the immigration dates changed to 1878, and that Lewis was not naturalized. I'm going to guess she got it right. No offense, Lewis. Mike is not living with the family in 1910, and based on his age from the previous census, he would have been about 17. Now, if we base it on the 1890 birthday and various newspaper articles, then he would be 20. So he's found living in Los Angeles as well at 128B South Treatment Street with his wife, Rebecca, and their six-month-old, Henry. Of note, it states on the census that Rebecca was born in Austria and immigrated in 1898. Mike is listed as 21 and a fruit peddler. Rebecca is 27. So as you probably noted, his age is all over the place. Mike and his parents lived approximately four to five miles from each other at this time, so hopefully his mom got her boy back, at least for a little bit. Mike and Rebecca had one more child, a daughter named Frances, who was born November 17, 1913 in Oakland, California, where the young family lived. We know Mike had a wife and two young children, but apparently he couldn't help but get himself in trouble. He spent several years without being in the paper and seemingly without drama, But in 1916, that changed. Around June of that year, Mike deserted his wife and family and took $3,000, leaving her and the two small children destitute. Becky, however, tracked him down and worked with police to lure him so that he could be arrested. So Mike had decided that he was going to head to Utah with one Rosie Goldstein to get a marriage license and wed, stating they were residents there. Apparently, he forgot he was already married, and apparently she did too. On August 7th, 1916, the two were married. It didn't take long for his legal wife, Rebecca, to hunt him down. She begged police to arrest her husband, and the trap was set to get him to meet her where the police took him into custody. Unbeknownst to Mrs. Globenfelt number one, her husband had been misbehaving prior to this and the federal authorities stepped in to transport her husband to Arizona for charges of white slavery. All right, I'll be back after this quick break. Learning about your family history creates connection to the past, the present, and the future. At My Genealogy Roots, we go on the journey with you as we discover the past and the ancestors before you. Our genealogists not only do the research for you, but they also engage with you to make sure you get to experience the journey of discovery. Contact us for your free 15-minute discovery call to see if we can help with your family history journey. Just go to MyGenealogyRoots.com and fill out the contact form. Mr. Mike Globenfeld, who had an alias of Henry Kahn, had got himself into quite the quandary. Yes, before the break, I said he was being accused for committing white slavery by federal agents. What the heck is that? Google was my friend on this one. According to Wikipedia, the White Slave Tariff Act, also called the Mann Act, is a United States federal law passed on June 25th, 1910. It's named after Congressman James Robert Mann of Illinois. So what does that mean? On the Cornell Law site... Website It states that, quote, the Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act of 1910, is a federal law that criminalizes the transportation of any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or any other immoral purpose, end quote. So it was ideally created to go after human sex traffickers, but was hit with criticism because it it was broadly used to prosecute unlawful, premarital, extramarital, and interracial relationships. The law was never repealed but was amended in 1978 to address child pornography and again in 1986 to address the quote any other immoral purpose phrase and change it to any sexual activity for which any person can be charged with a criminal offense. So, now what did Mike do to get pulled into an, an offense related to white slavery? According to the Daily Herald's reporting from August 17, 1916. Quote, it is alleged by federal officials that in February of this year, he took another woman, Ida Cook, from Los Angeles to Douglas, Arizona, for immoral purposes, thereby violating the Man white Slave Act. So Becky, wife number one, pleaded with Special Agent Leon Bone not to take her husband to Arizona, but the case was already in the hands of the federal authorities. She just wanted him punished for the abandonment and bigamy, but got much more than she bargained for. Moving forward to November of 1916, Mike was tried for his crimes against the Mann Act. The reporting from Arizona Daily Star indicates that Mike first met Mrs. Ida Cook and her aunt, Mrs. Cole, when the two flagged him down, mistaking his vehicle for a jitney. Now, a jitney is a bus or other vehicle carrying passengers for a low fare. He agreed to take them to where they wished, and Mrs. Cook sat in the front seat with him. On a later trip, they were going to Arizona. Mike stated that the two flirted and that she kissed him. He testified he in no way influenced her to make the trip and that he had gone to Douglas, Arizona to sell walnuts. Now, after they arrived, he did admit that they had relations. He denies, though, that he had anything to do with her entering the red light district in the area and actually tried to convince her to go back to her husband in Kingman, Arizona. Mrs. Cook stated otherwise, testifying that he took her to Douglas under the impression that he was single and tried to prevent her from going back to her husband. In the courtroom during this was Mrs. Goldmanfeldt, a.k.a. Becky, and their two small children. She testified on his behalf and stated that Mrs. Cook wouldn't leave her husband alone and that she had admitted to going to Douglas voluntarily. A few days later, Mike was found guilty of violating the Mann Act on all eight counts against him and was sentenced to two years. He was sent to McNeil Island, a federal penitentiary in Washington State. He was prisoner number twenty eight oh eight, and his intake record gives a description of Mike and states that his age was twenty six. His height is five two and a half, and that he's about one hundred and eighty pounds. He had medium dark brown hair, medium complexion, brown eyes, and his left pupil was larger than his right. He had gold crowns on some of his lower teeth, several scars and that his right middle finger had the tip amputated. Another important finding on his intake register is his birth date. So it states that he was born in Baltimore, Maryland, on the 28th of February 1890. Now, this is the first record stating a birth year of 1890, and it helps provide evidence toward that being the correct date. So perhaps the child born on February 2nd, 1892, was the child who didn't survive. His parents are listed on the form as living and his father's name and address as Louis Globenfelt at 1473 East 23rd Street in Los Angeles. So interestingly, Mike is listed as married and his wife's name and address was Becky Globenfeldt. 1402 East 23rd Street in Los Angeles, so not very far from his parents. Uh, we're not sure what happened to his Quote unquote marriage to Rosie Goldstein at this point, Mrs. Globenfeld number two. But apparently Becky was sticking by him, or Mike just put her name down because he didn't know. So while he was in prison at McNeil, his World War I draft registration was completed, and it also indicates that his birthday was February 28, 1890. Now, It's important to note who the informant would have been for these records, and he would have been the informant for this and likely for the prison intake as well. His address is listed as McNeil Island Prison. Mike was discharged from McNeil Island on July 5, 1918. So what happened to the bigamy charges, you ask? Good question. The Salt Lake Herald Republican reported on December 2, 1916, that Mike had been convicted of bigamy. It says he testified he thought polygamy was still legal in Utah. He was brought to Los Angeles for the trial. Um, I couldn't find any other information on how long he was sentenced. Since he was already in prison, perhaps it was time served or concurrent with his current sentence. Unfortunately, Mike didn't stay out of trouble and has a long rap sheet. I'll do a quick snapshot of those crimes before I talk about another major crime that landed him in Leavenworth. The records of the Bureau of Prisons inmate file for Mike contains a document from the State Department of Public Safety out of Lansing, Michigan, to the police department in Pontiac, Michigan, dated 21st of February, 1930. It lists known crimes for Mike as Mike Globenfeldt and under the name Mike Redner, which is his mom's maiden name. His prisoner number in Michigan was 3039. In 1919, three years after his sentence for white slavery, he was arrested for embezzlement in Oakland, California, but the case was dismissed. In the same month, he has a charge in Los Angeles for failure to provide. Comments state that uh, it was released, so I'm not sure what that means. Um, in June of 1922, he was arrested for writing bad checks in Fresno, California, and his sentence appears to be that he was sent to a state hospital in Stockton, California, for drug cure. So maybe the judge felt that uh, he needed drug help instead of prison time. Little did that judge know. So at the end of 1924, he was in Los Angeles and got into trouble, which I'll go into in a bit. But let's move forward to 1926, where he was in Portland, Oregon, and arrested for vagrancy. No word on the disposition. They probably let him go. In 1928, he was in Toledo, Ohio, and was arrested for suspicion. No word on the, di- on the disposition and no clear answer on what they thought he was suspicious of. In 1930, he was now in Michigan. Boy, he sure does move around a lot. And this time, he was using the name Mike Redner and was arrested in Saginaw on charges for false pretenses. Grand larceny of diamond rings. He was ultimately discharged and settled out of court in that same month he was he has charges in pontiac michigan for grand larceny and violation of the u.s narcotic law which brings me back to 1924 so going back to 1924 he was arrested in los angeles for violation of the harrison act and was sentenced to three counts at leavenworth federal penitentiary in kansas the Harrison Act was passed by Congress in 1914, which banned opioids and cocaine. Alcohol prohibition laws quickly followed. Mike was received on December 7, 1924, into Leavenworth, inmate number 22200, and he was sentenced to 18 months. He was eligible for parole on May 20th, 1925, but he wasn't released until February 18, 1926. One of the letters in his inmate file was a response to request for his criminal file from the Federal Bureau of Investigations, and the request was from Leavenworth. It's dated April 7th, 1925, and it gives information on what Mike's crimes were at that time that the FBI had on file. And what's interesting about this is that it is signed by the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, Now that's pretty cool. Also listed on his intake form was his personal information. He listed that he was 33 years old and married with three children, two boys and one girl, which at this point we only know that he has two children. So I'm not sure when or where this third child appeared, which would be another boy. His wife, however, is listed as Rose Globenfeld living at 1249 West 60th street in Los Angeles. So what happened to Becky? Who's Rose? Is Rose the second wife? Because that was Rosie Rose. Perhaps. We don't know. Is this the same Rose as wife number two that got him bigamy charges? Did he get divorced from Becky and legally marry Rose? Don't know at this point. Maybe that third child is with Rose. Looking at records for Rose, Rosie, she is listed as Rose Redner in the 1940 census and voter registrations, and we know that Redner was Mike's mother's maiden name and one of his aliases. I couldn't find any legit marriage records for the couple. Perhaps they weren't officially married and he never divorced Becky. In the 1930 census, Becky is listed as widowed, but Mike was still alive, so my guess is they were divorced, at least emotionally, if not legally. Mike Globenfeldt died at the age of 42 on April 14, 1934 in Long Beach, California. He died from, let's see if I can say this right, uh, sclerosis of the coronary arteries of the heart. So basically that means that the blood vessels became thick and stiff, which restricts your blood flow to your organs and tissues. That sounds like a heart attack. His wife, Rose, was the informant on his death certificate, and this is also something that's really important to look at when reviewing a death certificate. The informant may or may not be someone who should know all the pertinent facts about the deceased. As his wife, she would have firsthand knowledge about his information, such as birth date, birth location, et cetera. However, on the certificate, it only has a birth year, and it says unknown for his birth month and day. This seems odd that she wouldn't know this, especially when she knew his parents' names and their birthplaces. It's possible that she did know and indicated that information, but the person writing it up didn't capture it. The certificate indicates that Mike was in the produce market for the previous 20 years. Mike's life seemed to be full of turmoil from a young age, and perhaps the early crimes against him set in motion the path he took in life. His two known children, Henry and Francis, lived until 1999 and 1988 respectively. Sadly, they probably didn't get to know their dad during his lifetime and were 25 and 21 when he died. Until next time, my criminal genies, remember, the records don't lie, but your ancestors might.